Hey, thank you for being patient with us while we try to iron out some technical issues with our internet connection. We have folks live streaming who aren't able to be here today, and uh, the internet is being stubborn and not letting us do that very well. So we wanted to try to make that work as best as we could um, and get the proper programs printed for you. So I hope that you all grabbed a program or somebody handed one to you. If you look through there, you'll see all of the scripture readings and all of the words to all of the hymns that we're going to be singing together today are printed right there in your program. And so that's all you'll need. Also notice on the back of your program, towards the bottom, there is a website address where you can go to um, a, a memorial site for Gill and be able to leave some memories or pictures or anecdotes, stories for the family to be able to read after the service today. So if everybody would maybe take advantage of that in the wake of the service today, that would be wonderful. Let's open up with a word of prayer this morning as we begin and come into the presence of our God and focus our minds on his word and his truth and the sure hope of glory and heaven that we all want to be focused on and fixed on on days like today when we're sorrowful and and when we're in the midst of loss of a dear brother like Gil Gunn. Let's pray to our God today as we begin. Our Father, we do thank you as we come into your presence today in memory of our friend and our brother, Gil Gunn, who was a father, who was a grandfather, who was a great-grandfather, who was a brother to many of us in the Lord, who worked tirelessly in many ways in this world and in this community for many, many years and was beloved by all of us in so many ways. We praise you for him. We praise you for his life. We praise you for his legacy. We praise you for all of your work and the ways in which you glorified yourself through Gil. We praise you for your word now, which assures us, Father, that through faith in Jesus Christ, there is the sure and true and lasting and abiding hope of eternal life and being in the presence of our God forever. And we praise you that that is the hope that we have this morning, so that even as the family and the friends and the rest of us all together grieve and mourn the loss of Gil after these 102 years of his life in this world, Father, that we don't have to grieve as those who have no hope. And so we pray that as we focus on your word today, as we sing praises to you today, God, that you would fill this family with consolation and with comfort and with hope and with the peace that passes all understanding. And Father, that you would glorify yourself. So be with us in this time today, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. One of Gil and Marge's favorite psalms, Psalm 23, and they had told us many times that when it came to this time, this was one of the psalms that we would be reading in their memory and in honor of the Lord's words. So let me read with you the familiar and beautiful and hopeful words of Psalm 23. The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside quiet waters. He restores my soul. He guides me in the paths of righteousness for his namesake. Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I fear no evil, for thou art with me. Thy rod and thy staff, they comfort me. 
And thou dost prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. Thou hast anointed my head with oil, and my cup overflows. Surely goodness and loving kindness will follow me all the days of my life, and I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. And all of God's people can say amen to that. Amen. Let's all stand together. Stan's going to come up and lead us in singing one of Gil's favorite all-time hymns, which is not actually a hymn, but the words of Jesus himself in Matthew chapter 6. We're going to be singing the Lord's Prayer. Our Father, which art in heaven, Thank you for for being here. Uh, thank you for being a part of their lives. I know they would be they would be touched to see you. I know they're touched looking down to see you here. Uh, and I'm I'm confident that they also touched your lives. And I'm happy that that we were all able to be a part of this. A grandparent is a little bit parent, a little bit teacher and a little bit best friend. Uh, 
I stood up here five months ago. I said those same words when I talked about my grandmother, Marge Gunn. And I wish it was under different circumstances that I was saying them, but I'm honored to be able to say a few words about my grandfather, Gilbert Roland Gunn, or as you know him, Gil. Those same words ring just as true when I think about my grandfather. 102 years. 81 of them spent with Marge. And I can, as far as I could tell, from all the reading I've done, everything I know about them, every year spent making this place better. He was smart, strong, caring, loving, and boy, he was inquisitive. From Salinas High School to welding ships in Pearl Harbor, to a manager at PG&E, to Rotarian, to mayor of Sunnyvale, to traveler, and horseshoe aficionado. I just remember all the times that we had together, think about the horseshoe throwing, think about the RV. Used to think as a kid how much stronger I was than him. Surely I'd beat this old man in arm wrestling. Boy, he proved me wrong. <laughs> but I don't know if he ever knew how much strength I saw in him as a man. And as I grew older, and I raised my... Excuse me. As I raised my own children, I just hope and pray that I can become more like him in every way. And I hope that I can pass some of him on to them. Seems like everything that he did, he did it with the highest level of integrity and with the aim of making a positive impact on everyone around him or everyone that he would interact with or anything that he was doing. When I reread what I wrote about Grandma in, in August, I realized I really wasn't writing about Grandma. I was writing about them. I could have reread just about everything that I wrote about Grandma this morning. Except I'm going to bring up the diet. I'll bring up his diet, of course. But what a blessing they've been to us and, and to so many people over a hundred years. I imagine the last five months felt like an eternity to Grandpa. And now they're together again. And I would call and check in on my mom and ask how he was doing. And I just know how hard that that was over the last several months. And I'm so happy that they are able to be with one another again and be with their Lord and Savior. No more tears about missing Grandpa. No more thinking about missing Grandma. And no more broccoli. We all know Grandma's been on him about that diet for decades. In fact, she was on him, I think, about everything. She was on him about his diet. She would get on him about working too much around the house. She would get on him about trying to do things that he just knew he could do that she didn't think he should be doing. 
always trying to do too much. But after 81 years of marriage and 102 years on earth, maybe there was something to all that, what she was saying. I told you five months ago, here, standing right here, that the, the grandpa's diet was the key to knowing who actually ran the family, and that was grandma. But my mom and uncles told me that he was making sure to catch up on all of that over the last five months. There's a running joke in the family about his diet and her hounding him. And everyone knew that you could go through him if you wanted to get something that maybe you thought Grandma would say no to. If you wanted candy, go through Grandpa. If you wanted to go out and eat instead of eating Grandma's leftovers, just go to Grandpa. He was always just a suggestion away from going to wherever you wanted to go to eat. When I spoke to you uh, in August, I shared that I, uh, online, I shared a picture of them holding a picture of themselves that they got thousands of likes. It was them in their late 90s holding a picture of them in their, four, uh, in their uh, early 20s. And uh, I also posted another picture, just me and Grandpa. It was... Uh, for his 99th birthday, we went down to 99 bottles of beer. <laughs> it might have been the only actual beer that I've ever seen him drink. I remember the Rolling Rock and the O'Douls. He always encouraged me to grab the Miller Lite, but he, we always would have an O'Douls together. That picture got 16,000 likes online just from strangers all over the world asking how he looks the way he looks, telling me that I'm lying, the guy must be in his 60s, asking about the guy who's sitting next to him who must also be in his 60s. Those were most of the comments. People loved his spirit. You could see it looking at him. He always had the best spirit. He was always quick to listen and slow to judge. And he was always in a hurry to love you. He'd always be a guiding light for me and for, I hope, some of you as well. Hopefully I can strive to be more like him. And if I can strive to do that, I know I'm always going to be improving. I can't think of a better role model in my life that I had than my grandfather. I can't wait until my son, who never got the chance to meet him, he's 10 months old, gets to know him through the stories that I get to share with, with my son. Perhaps the most important thing I want to share about Grandpa was the way he listened and the way he wanted to know more about you and your life. And I said the same thing about Grandma, but it was so true about, about Grandpa. Gil would, wanted to know every detail about what was going on in your life. From the smallest of things to the biggest of things. He wanted the details. He wanted to know your motivation and your reason behind doing those things. And not, not so that he could judge what you were doing. Just so he could know you. He just wanted to know you. Just so he could love you. I'm sure you all have the same or some of the same memories maybe that I have. Times at the beach. Times in Mount Hermon. Times in the RV. Sitting them 
with them here in church, seeing them love on one another. Barbecues on their patio, communing over the meals at their table, rooting on the warriors, talking about the Bible, having clam chowder on the wharf. Their house was always full, as I mentioned last time. Everybody wanted to know him more. He wanted to know you more. He listened intently. He listened deeply. It was as if your life updates were like breaking news on CNN or something. Just like he needed all the details. He needed to know why. He had an amazingly giving heart, just like Marge did. When they, when they did uh, his uh, 102nd year uh, birthday, and the Rotary Club came and interviewed him, and he shared about all of his life and things that changed. He saw all these amazing changes from TVs to computers to cell phones. and Most importantly, he talked about Grandma. And he talked about loving God. He was the epitome of, of two things, loving God with all your heart and soul, and loving your neighbor more than, as yourself or even more than yourself in his case. In the last sentence, I mentioned this in, at Grandma's service as well, the last sentence that he wrote in his autobiography biography was, God has been so gracious to give me a wife who believes like I do and who loves the Lord with all her heart. And when the Rotary Club interviewed him at 102 and asked him what advice he would give somebody to find an amazing wife. If he could give you one piece of advice, he said, find an amazing wife. Boy, did he ever. What an amazing life they shared and how blessed we were to be able to share in that portion of that life with them. I know they're in our hearts. I know they will remain in our hearts and in our thoughts and in the stories that we'll share about them. And I know now together they're in paradise with Jesus, celebrating. And so I hope that you're able to, over the many years to come, celebrate as well and reflect on the memories and the good times that you've had with them. And I hope that they can live on through the stories forever and ever that you'll share with your loved ones and your family members and your friends. We love them. We'll keep loving them. They'll always be with us. And thank you for being here. Let's take your bulletins now and let's turn to It Is Well With My Soul. Gil really loved the hymns and this is one time we're going to change it just a little bit. I'll explain exactly how we're going to do this. There, you'll notice that there are six verses. You don't normally see that in the hymnal. In this particular one, they're all written there in order, but we're going to do it. We're going to sing the chorus only after the first verse and after the last verse. It'll save just a little bit of time is all, okay? So we're going to do this, and uh, I'll let you stay seated this time.
When peace like a river attendeth my way, when sorrows like sea billows roll, whatever my lot thou hast taught me to say, it is well, it is well with my soul. It is well with my soul. It is well, it is well with my soul. Though say should buffet or trials should come. Let this blessed assurance control that Christ has regarded my helpless estate and has shed his own blood for my soul. My sin, oh, the bliss of this glorious thought. My sin, not in part, but the whole, is nailed to the cross, and I bear it no more. Praise the Lord, praise the hence to live if Jordan above me shall roll no pang shall be mine for in death as in life thou wilt whisper thy peace to my soul but Lord is for thee, for thy coming we wait. The sky, not the grave, is our goal. O trump of the angel, O voice of the Lord, blessed hope, blessed rest of my soul. The clouds be rolled back as a scroll. The trump shall resound, and the Lord shall descend, even though it is well with my soul. It is well.
You can see the reason why I hope that we like to sing all six verses, some of which maybe some of you hadn't sung before today. It's because when you sing all six verses, it becomes a sermon all about the gospel and all about the truest meaning of life. And it walks right through everything that we want to talk about on a day like today. When I, when I asked Gil, we had to have a conversation per his own request about what would happen today. And when I said, Gil, what do you want me to talk about? And he said, the gospel. And I said, any elaboration on that? And he said, the gospel. <laughs> Just talk about the gospel. Because life comes to an end in this world. And then we're left to face eternity, and the gospel is our only hope. I think that, Wayne, if you ever wanted to quit the job that you have now, you could make a good living being a professional eulogy writer. I know those, those words come straight out of your heart, and we could tell that they are driven and motivated by a deep love for your grandparents, and we appreciate that so much, and it touches us, and it's meaningful, but what beautiful words, right? What a wonderful testament of the kind of life that Gil lived, and he lived it well, and what a beautiful testimony of all of the ways that Gil worked hard for a lot of years to do things in this world that are important and that are meaningful and that make a difference, and that bring blessing to the lives of people in this world. And we want to thank you all for being here to be a part of that, because I know, as Wayne said, he touched so many lives. And so all of you that have come to this building, all of you that are, that are viewing on the internet and on the live stream from all over the United States, and maybe other places in the world too, are people whose lives were touched by Gil Gunn, in some way, shape, or form over the last many, many years, many, many decades. So days like today are good days at the same time that they're hard days, right? It's good for family and for friends to get together and to remember, right, all of the ways in which the loved one who we miss so much touched our lives. It's good to recall all the great things, about Gil's life because all of those things are reminders about how important his specific life was and how important life in general is. And it's so important to be able to hang on to those memories even when he's gone and especially when he's gone. And so today's a good day and it's also a hard day because it's a reminder that, that Gil's no longer with us in this world. And everyone here today Misses Gill a lot. Physical death in this world is an unavoidable reality. And it's not a particularly pleasant reality. It frightens a lot of people. And it grieves all of us when somebody close to us dies. Well, God is the creator of all life. And he is also the one and the only one who has the authority over all life and over death. He says in Psalm 139 that he has written in his book, every one of them, the days of our lives before as yet there were any of them for us to live. From eternity past, God has written 
the script. He's the creator of life and he's the sovereign Lord of life and the sovereign Lord over death. And in his word, he speaks some very, very important words to us about life and death. And so the words I want to read to you today from God's word come out of the Old Testament and come out of the book of Lamentations. Now that may not be a very familiar book to some of you. The name of the book tells us what it's all about. Lamentations is a book of lament. It's a book full of sorrow. It's a book full of expressions of grief. It was written by the prophet Jeremiah. He's sometimes called the weeping prophet because so much of his writings reflect the grief and the mourning that he felt in his heart. And so we can resonate with it on days like today. Jeremiah wrote Lamentations in response to a really, really hard situation when the enemy nation of Babylon came and laid waste to his home city of Jerusalem. And all throughout this little book of Lamentations, Jeremiah kind of recounts how terrible things were in those days, how hard it was. The city was under siege for over a year. People didn't have food. People didn't have water. Ultimately, the city was torn down and destroyed, and there was tremendous loss of life. And Jeremiah lamented as he reflected on the hard reality of death. And, and you know these words, I think. Because right in the middle of the book of Lamentations, in chapter 3, he writes those beautiful, some of the sweetest, one of the most comforting words that you'll ever hear and that were ever written anywhere in the world, and including in God's word. You picture Jeremiah in your minds as he's sitting there suffering and having encountered the realities of mortality in this world and surrounded by pain. Picture him sitting there and writing these words as he contemplates grief, as he contemplates sorrow. He says, remember my affliction and my wanderings, the wormwood, bitterness, the gall, of my circumstances, my soul continually remembers it and is, and is bowed down within me because of it. But this I call to mind, and therefore I have hope. The steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. His mercies never come to an end. They are new every morning, even that morning where the circumstances were so painfully hard. Great is your faithfulness. The Lord is my portion, says my soul. Not anything in this world, ultimately, but the Lord, and therefore will I hope in Him. The Lord is good to those who wait for Him and to the soul who seeks Him. So today we are here to remember Gil Gunn's life and fill our minds and our hearts with all the good memories that we're left with now that he's no longer with us. But I want us to ask ourselves today, and Gil, I think, would want us to ask ourselves today now that his life in this world has come to an end and he's moved on to eternity, are the memories all that there is? Is that all that life is? The accumulation of those memories? 
And Gil accumulated more of them than most of us will ever hope to over 102 years and 81 years of marriage. It's remarkable. Is that all there is? The closing of one earthly chapter after the next? And as we move towards the end of our lives, more and more life lies behind us than what lies in front of us. And so the closing of the chapters becomes harder and more and more painful. Is that all there is? Or is there more? Does does the ache that we feel in our hearts when loved ones die, this does this instinct that we have, every one of us in us, to, to sort of rebel against the closing of the chapters, does that, does that signify that maybe we're made for something more than, than even the greatness of life in this world and all of its blessings? Something beyond, something future, something, something permanent, and not just fleeting. I think it does. I think that the pain of death absolutely signifies that our souls deeply long for something more. And the reason they long for something more is because our souls were made for something more. God says in his word in the, in the book of Ecclesiastes and in chapter 3 and verse 11, he says that he has set eternity in our hearts. And that means that every single human heart is made with a longing and a sense of eternity. We want something more. We want something permanent. Every one of us knows it. Every one of us experiences this this passion for something precious and something deep and something true and something satisfying that is permanent, that doesn't end, that doesn't pass away. And see, that longing that we all have and share in common with each other it's not just some evolutionary chemical development in us that has, that has no more real personal significance than an upset stomach. God tells us in his word that he set that longing for eternity in our hearts. And he's told us the only way that that longing can be satisfied. He's told us that we can belong to a kingdom and a family that is permanent and everlasting, that even death cannot separate us from. So in Lamentations, when the pain of of death and impermanence filled Jeremiah's heart, he refused just to see a painful ending. And he deliberately set his mind towards the things that don't end towards eternity. This I call to mind. Therefore, I have hope. And so God tells us in no uncertain terms that waiting on Him and seeking Him and trusting Him and His steadfast love and His mercy and His faithfulness, that's what it means, all of that, to have Him as our portion, that that promises us what our souls long for, a time and a place where there will be no more sense of loss, no more, no more painful endings, because he's our portion. And in his word, he's very, very clear about how he pours out his steadfast love, about how he lavishes people with his mercy, and about what he promises to people if they will trust him. 
and find him to be their portion. The gospel, Steve. Tell them the gospel. So let me just summarize briefly the gospel, the message of hope, the message of comfort that God gives in order to answer this longing that every human being is familiar with. First, the Bible teaches us, God speaks in his word to us, the fact that he's our maker and that we are created and made and fashioned in his image. In his image, Genesis chapter 1 and verse 27, God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him, male and female, he created them. That's what makes us different from any other living organism in the world or in the universe. From animals, even. All that makes your life personal rather than just mechanical. All of the love and, and, and your sense of, of justice, right, that everybody shares in common. We may define it differently, but everybody wants it. Everybody requires justice in their world. The sense of duty that drives us all. The sense of right and wrong that drives us all. Even all our regrets that we have about things that haven't gone right. All of our hopes, all of our ambitions, all of our dreams, all of those kinds of things are are the echoes of the image of God in us. And they prove to our own consciences that we are people who live in the presence of this creator who made us in his image. We're not just the accidental accumulation of of chemical reactions. We were made and fashioned in a way that reflects who God is. And so the Bible answers this massive question of of why and how we're different from any other living thing. Why we have such struggles in our souls between the passing of time and the presence of eternity. The answer is that we're made in God's image. And we're made for God's glory. And then the second thing that the Bible teaches is, Even though we were made in his image and even though we were made for his glory, we we fell away from that. We we sinned against him. It gives us this explanation of, of what's going on inside of us when we look back over our lives and feel regret. Feel like things could have been so different. I could have done so much more. I could have loved so much better. And when we look forward into the future and, and we're honest about the fact that that it scares us. What are, those, what are those feelings that every human being has about failure and about, and about fear? Well, God tells us that those feelings are his way of, of letting us know that we've turned away from his way, that we've gone after our own way, and it doesn't always work out well that way. We've strayed from the path that he created for us to walk on and tried to chart our own course instead. We haven't honored him as the God and the Lord who made us in his image. The word for that in scripture is is sinner and, and the solution for it is savior. We need somebody to save us. God is holy. He's, he's just. He's righteous. He can't look at sin even, his word says. 
And so the, the reality is that as sinners, we, we've, we've become estranged from the holy God. We've become alienated from him. And this is the explanation for all of the turmoil of the human soul. God, this is God's diagnosis. And it's a perfect diagnosis and explanation for what's going on inside of every human heart. And his prescription for that problem is also perfect, the, the solution to it. And so the, the third thing is that the Bible shows us what God has done. In his great steadfast love, in his immeasurable mercy that never ends. What has he done to fix the problem, to save us from our sin? He's reconciled us to himself. He's adopted us as his children. He's given us freedom from the curse of guilt and regret and fear. So as to give us a hope for something beyond all of the things in this world that always come to painful endings. He's given us a hope of everlasting joy, permanent joy, permanent relationships that will never end because they will all be rooted and grounded in in him and what he has done. And what he has done is to send his only begotten son, Jesus Christ to come into this world and to pay the price that we owe because of the sin that we've all committed. Because if we had to pay the price, we would be forever alienated from him. So he pays it for us so that we can be reconciled to him. And that required Jesus to come and to die. But it didn't end there because he even defeated death. He rose So that death could no longer define our ultimate realities. So that we might be forgiven. So that we might be given new life in him. Which guarantees the promise of being with him. And having him as our portion someday permanently. In the unshakable permanence of his family and his kingdom. And there are so many places in God's word where he just pours out his merciful, compassionate, faithful, steadfastly loving heart to tell us all of this, that Jesus came into the world to save us. Paul says it explicitly like this in 1 Timothy chapter 1 and verse 15. It's a trustworthy statement, full of, worthy of, deserving of full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into this world to save sinners. Among whom, Paul says, I am the foremost, I'm the worst one. And his grace is sufficient for even me. John says it, of course, in John 3.16, For God so loved the world, even though we we weren't loving him, even though we went astray, did things our own way, which led to despair and regret and fear and death. God loved the world so much that he gave his only begotten son as a free gift so that whoever believes in him Just trust him. Shall not perish, but have everlasting life. Or Peter's words in 1 Peter 3, verse 18, Christ also died for sins once for all. The just one died for all of the unjust ones so that he might bring us to God. So that God could be our portion if we would trust him. 
Romans 5 sums it up this way. For while we were still helpless to do anything to fix it ourselves, to save ourselves, to, to work our way back into God's good graces, to reconcile ourselves to God, help, we couldn't do it. While we were still helpless at the right time, Christ did it. He died for the ungodly. Why did Jesus die? He says, one will hardly die for a righteous man. But God demonstrated his own love towards us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Much more than having now been justified by his blood, we will be saved from the wrath of God through him. For if while we were enemies of God, we were reconciled to God through the death of Jesus, his son, much more having been reconciled, we shall be saved by his life because he was raised and he can never die again. See, there's no other religion, teaching, philosophy, worldview, anywhere in this world, anywhere in history, that diagnoses the condition of the human heart in a more penetrating and true-to-life way than what God reveals to us in his word. And there is absolutely nothing else in this world that offers the remedy for, for real guilt and remorse and shame and rebellion and alienation from, from God. And real deserved fear of the future. Nothing remedies it except the gospel. Only the gospel shows us that God has made a way for himself to both be the one who is just and will always deal with sin. And the justifier, the one who can tell us, you're worthy to be in my presence forever. Not because you earned it, but because I gave it and I did it for you. Just trust me. Just have faith in Jesus. So when Jesus died for our sins, when Jesus rose again, all of God's honor, all of God's justice and righteousness were vindicated. And in that very same act, Jesus became our substitute. He he bore the punishment that I deserved. He completed the demand for me to be Holy as God is holy. I could never do that, but he did it for me. He's done what none of us could ever, ever do. He's borne our sins and he's become our righteousness. And so John says, as many as received him. It's all it takes. Just receive him. Come to him and say, save me. Reconcile me to God. As many as do that, he gave the right to become children of God even those who believe in his name. And the Apostle Paul said, by grace you have been saved through faith. It's not of yourselves. It's a gift from God. It's not as the result of works or earning or meriting or deserving. No one can boast that they did something to earn it. It's just a gift. Because God's steadfast love and mercy never ceases never comes to an end. And this is his love and mercy towards us. This is how he comforts us when we face the painful realities of death. This is how he satisfies our soul's deepest 
longings. This is how he promises us the eternity that he has set in our hearts. One more quote for you. One, one last piece of beautiful, beautiful testimony from God's word. This one comes from the, the last book in the Bible, the book of Revelation. God reveals what eternity and what kingdom and what family and what permanent joy will, will be like. Listen to this. God gives the Apostle John a, a great vision of a multitude of people, so many that nobody could possibly ever count how many who trusted God, who waited on God, who came to Christ and said, please reconcile me to the Father. And he did. He gave them life. And John shows us how this, this vast, countless multitude, and somewhere in the middle of all of them, you could never count them, it's a huge, unimaginable sea of people, and somewhere in the middle is Gil and Marge. And here's what it's like to be there. John says, I looked, and behold, a great multitude that no one could number, people from every nation, from all tribes, from all peoples, speaking all languages, all around the whole world, for all of history. Standing before the throne of God and before the Lamb, clothed in pure white robes. And they had palm branches in their hands and they were crying out with a loud voice and saying, Salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb, Jesus Christ. And he said to me, these are the ones coming out of the He calls it the great tribulation. And what I believe that means is this life in this world. It's hard. At the beginning of Revelation, John says, I'm a partner with you in the great tribulation. He said that 2,000 years ago. He was being persecuted. He had been exiled to this island, kind of a prison colony, an island called Patmos out in the middle of the ocean. He says, I'm, I'm feeling tribulation right now, and I'm sharing it with you, and, and we're still sharing it together because life in this world is impermanent and things crumble and fall apart and, and they're hard. But if we put our hope in Jesus, then, then the picture of what lies beyond that will be ours gives us hope. So these are the ones who have come out of that. They've washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. There's no more stains of sin on them. Therefore, because of the blood of Christ, they are before the throne of God and they serve him day and night in his temple. And he who sits on the throne, God, shelters them with his presence. So, they will never hunger anymore. They will never thirst anymore. The sun will never strike them or any scorching heat. It means they'll never, ever suffer anything again. Because the lamb in the midst of the throne will be their everlasting shepherd and will guide them to springs of living water. And God will wipe every tear from their eye. You know what that means? It means no more painful endings, no more sorrow. No more fear, no more tears, 
Now that is what each and every human being was made for. And, and then we turned our backs on it and said, no, I'd rather have whatever I want in this impermanent world. But Christ came in order to bring us back to it. And so today, I know it's a sad day, a sorrowful day, and there's, there's real mourning and there's real grief because of the loss of life, but understand, it's not the end. In 1 Thessalonians 4, Paul just uses the word sleep to describe people like Gil who trusted Christ and, and died in this world. He uses the word sleep because it's not the end. It's not the final thing. Right now, Gil is at home with his Lord and one day his body even will be raised and body and soul, he will always be with the Lord. And so today I pray that all of this hope and all of this truth of this gospel, good news of faith in Jesus Christ and the inheritance and the life and the portion and the kingdom that lies ahead for all of us who trust him will, will awaken in everyone the sure hope of eternity that God freely gives only through faith in his son, Jesus Christ. Now let me pray. And then we're going to sing one of my favorite hymns, How Great Thou Art. Our Father and our God, would you comfort us with these words, especially Gil's family. They're grieving today because they miss him. And so, Father, would you give them comfort and would you give them consolation in the sure and true knowledge that you yourself, the creator of life, have, have revealed in your word that Gil is at home with you because he had faith in Jesus who paid all the price for all of his sins and freely and mercifully and lovingly reconciled him to you. Father, may we all have this faith. May we all know this hope. And may you bring us all home, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Stand, come and lead us. Take your bulletins now and let's turn to How Great Thou Art. And let's sing it all together. <clears throat> O Lord my God, when I in awesome wonder consider all the worlds thy hands have made, I see the stars, I hear the rolling thunder, thy power throughout the universe displayed, then sings my soul, my Savior God, to thee, how great thou art, how great thou art. Then sings my soul, my Savior God, to thee, how great thou art, how great thou art. When through the grandeur and hear the book and feel the 
gentle breeze. Then sings my soul, my Savior God, to thee, how great thou art, how great thou art. Then sings my soul, my Savior God, to thee, how great thou art, how great thou art. And when I think that God his Son not sparing sent him to die, I scarce can take it in that on the cross my burden gladly bearing he bled and died to take away my sin then sings my soul my savior god to thee how great thou art how great thou art then sings my soul my Savior God to thee, how great thou art, how great thou art. When Christ shall come with shout of acclamation and take me home, what joy shall fill my heart. Then I shall bow in humble adoration and there proclaim, My God, how great thou art. Then sings my soul, my Savior God, to thee, How great thou art, how great thou art. Then sings my soul, my Savior God, to thee, how great thou art, how great thou art. Let's take your bulletins now and let's turn to the page with 2 Corinthians 5, 1 through 8. Hear God's word. For we know that if the earthly tent, which is our house, is torn down, we have a building from God, a house not made with hands, eternal in the heavens. For indeed, in this house we groan, longing to be clothed with our dwelling from heaven. Inasmuch as we, having put it on, shall not be found naked. For indeed, while we are in this tent, we groan, being burdened, because we do not want to be unclothed, but to be clothed, in order that what is mortal may be swallowed up by life. Now he who prepared us for this very purpose is God, who gave to us the Spirit as a pledge. Therefore, being always of good courage and knowing that while we are at home in the body, we are absent from the Lord. For we walk by faith, not by sight, we are of a good courage, I say, and prefer rather to be absent from the body and to be at home with the Lord. That's God's word. Let's all stand together now and sing Amazing Grace.
sound that saved a wretch like me. I once was lost, but now am found, was blind, but now I see. Was grace that taught my heart to fear, and grace my fears relieved. How precious did that grace appear, the hour I first believed. Bow with me as we close our time today in prayer. Our God and our Father, we praise you for the sure words of hope and joy that you have revealed to us in your word. We praise you for your steadfast love and your mercy. We praise you for telling us, Father, what the hope of eternity is and how you have offered it to us and given it to us and secured it for all who place their faith in Christ Jesus. We praise you for the comfort that that brings to this family and to all that knew Gill and that knew Marge today. Father, we love them and we ask that you would comfort them and console them, that in the midst of grief you would give joy and peace. We love you and we praise you and we thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. The Lord says in his word in 2 Thessalonians chapter 3, these simple words, and I give them to you as a closing. Now may the Lord of peace himself give you peace at all times and in every way. The Lord be with you all. Amen. Amen. Go in grace.